Book One, Chapter Seven of The Life of John Ruskin by W. G. Collingwood. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life of John Ruskin by W. G. Collingwood. Book One, The Boy Poet, eighteen nineteen to eighteen forty two, Chapter Seven. Katapushin, eighteen thirty seven to eighteen thirty eight. Recording by Graham Arrowsmith. Devoted as she was to her husband, Mrs. Ruskin felt bound to watch over her son at Oxford. It was his health she was always anxious about. Doctoring was her forte. He had suffered from pleurisy, caught cold easily, was feared to be weak in the lungs, and nobody but his mother understood him. So taking Mary Richardson, she went up with him, January 1837, and settled in lodgings at Adams in the High. Her plan was to make no intrusion on his college life, but to require him to report himself every day to her. She would not be dull. She could drive about and see the country, and to that end took her own carriage to Oxford, the fly which had been set up two years before. John had been rather sarcastic about its genteel appearance. No one, he said, would sit down to draw the form of it. However, she and Mary drove to Oxford, and reckoned that it would only mean fifteen months' absence from home altogether, great part of which deserted Papa would spend in travelling. John went into residence in Peckwater. At first he spent every evening with his mother and went to bed, as Mrs Dale had told him, at ten. After a few days... Professor Powell asked him to a musical evening. He excused himself and explained why. The professor asked to be introduced, whereupon, says his mother, I shall return the call, but make no visiting acquaintances. The early-to-bed plan was also impractical. It was not long before somebody came hammering at his oak, just as he was getting to sleep, and next morning he told his mother that he really ought to have a glass of wine to give. So she sent him a couple of bottles over, and that very night Mr. Little and Mr. Gaysford, Jr., turned up. John was glad he had wine to offer, but they would not take any. They had come to see sketches. John says Mr. Little looked at them with the eye of a judge and the delight of an artist, and swore they were the best sketches he had ever seen. John accused him of quizzing, but he answered that he really thought them excellent. John said that it was the scenes which made the pictures. Mr. Little knew better, and spread the fame of them over the college. Next morning, Lord Emlyn and Lord Ward called to look at the sketches, and when the undergraduates had dropped in one after another, the dean himself, even the terrible Gaysford, sent for the portfolio, and returned it with august approval. Little, afterwards dean of Christchurch, Newton, afterwards Sir Charles of the British Museum, Ackland, afterwards Sir Henry, the professor of medicine, thus became John Ruskin's friends, the first disputing with him on the burning question of Raphael's art, but from the outset an admirer of modern painters, and always an advocate of its author, the second differing from him on the claims of Greek archaeology, but nevertheless a close acquaintance through many long years, and the third, for half a century, the best of friends and counsellors. The dons of his college he was less likely to attract. Mr. Buckland, the famous geologist, and still more famous lecturer and talker, 
took notice of him and employed him in drawing diagrams for lectures. The Reverend Walter Brown, his college tutor, afterwards rector of Wendelbury, won his goodwill and remained his friend. His private tutor, the Reverend Osborne Gordon, was always regarded with affectionate respect, but the rest seemed to have looked upon him as a somewhat desultory and erratic young genius, who might or might not turn out well. For their immediate purpose, the schools, and church or state preferment, he seemed hardly the fittest man. The gentlemen commoners of Christ Church were a puzzle to Mrs. Ruskin. Noblemen of sporting tastes who rode and betted and drank, and got their impositions written by men attached to the university for the purpose, at one shilling and sixpence to two shillings and sixpence, so you only have to reckon how much you will give to avoid chapel. And yet they were very nice fellows. If they began by riding on John's back round the quad, they did not give him the cold shoulder, quite the reverse. He was asked everywhere to whine, he beat them all at chess, and they invaded him at all hours. It does little good sporting his oak, wrote his mother, describing how Lord Desert and Grimston, climbing in through his window while he was hard at work. They say midshipmen and Oxonians have more lives than a cat, and they have need of them if they run such risks. Once, but once only, he was guilty, as an innocent freshman, of a breach of the laws of his order. He wrote too good an essay. He tells his father, Oxford, February, 1837. Yesterday, Saturday, forenoon the sub-dean sent for me, took me up into his study, sat down with me, and read over my essay, pointing out a few verbal alterations and suggesting improvements. I, of course, expressed myself highly grateful for his condescension. Going out, I met strange ways. So you're going to read out today, Ruskin. Do go it at a good rate, my good fellow. Why do you write such devilish good ones? Went a little farther and met March. Mind you stand on the top of the desk, Ruskin. Gentlemen commoners never stand on the steps. I asked him whether I would look more dignified to stand head or heels uppermost. He advised heels. Then met Desart. We must have a grand supper after this, Ruskin. Gentlemen commoners always have a flare-up after reading their themes. I told him I supposed he wanted to pissen my rum and water, and though they teased him unmercifully, he seems to have given as good as he got. At a big wine after the event, they asked him whether his essay cost two shillings and sixpence or five shillings. What he answered is not reported, but they proceeded to make a bonfire in Peckwater while he judiciously escaped to bed. So for a home-bred boy, thrown into rather difficult surroundings, his first appearance at Christchurch was distinctly a success. Collections in March 1837 went off creditably for him. Hussey, Kiniston and the Dean said he had taken great pains with his work and had been a pattern of regularity, and he ended his first term very well pleased with his college and with himself. In his second term, he had the honour of being elected to the Christ Church Club a very small and very exclusive society of the best men in the college. Simeon, Ackland and Mr Dennison proposed him. Lord Carew and Broadhurst supported. And he had the opportunity of meeting men of mark, as the following letter recounts. He writes, on April the 22nd, 1837, My dearest father, when I returned from Hall yesterday, where a servitor read, 
or pretended to read, and Decanus growled at him. Speak out! I found a note on my table from Dr. Buckland, requesting the pleasure of my company to dinner, at six, to meet two celebrated geologists, Lord Cole and Sir Philip Egerton. I immediately sent a note of thanks and acceptance, dressed, and was there a minute after the last stroke of Tom. Alone for five minutes in Dr. B.'s drawing-room, who soon afterwards came in with Lord Cole, introduced me, and said that as we were both geologists, he did not hesitate to leave us together while he did what he certainly very much required, brushed up a little. Lord Cole and I were talking about some fossils newly arrived from India. He remarked in the course of conversation that his friend Dr. B.'s room was cleaner and in better order than he remembered ever to have seen it. There was not a chair fit to sit upon, all covered with dust, broken alabaster candlesticks, withered flower leaves, frogs cut out of serpentine, broken models of fallen temples, torn papers, old manuscripts, stuffed reptiles, deal boxes, brown paper, wool, tow, and cotton, and a considerable variety of articles. In came Mrs. Buckland, then Sir Philip Egerton and his brother, whom I had seen at Dr. B.'s lecture, though he is not an undergraduate. I was talking to him till dinner-time. While we were sitting over our wine after dinner, in came Dr. Daubeny, one of the most celebrated geologists of the day. A curious little animal, looking through its spectacles with an air very distingué, and Mr. Darwin, whom I had heard read a paper at the Geological Society. He and I got together and talked all the evening. The long vacation of 1837 was passed in a tour through the north, during which his advanced knowledge of art was shown in a series of admirable drawings. Their subjects are chiefly architectural, though a few mountain drawings are found in his sketchbook for that summer. The interest in ancient and picturesque buildings was no new thing, and it seems to have been the branch of art study which was chiefly encouraged by his father. During this tour among Cumberland cottages and Yorkshire abbeys, a plan was formed for a series of papers on architecture, perhaps in answer to an invitation from his friend, Mr. Loudon, who had started an architectural magazine. In the summer he began to write The Poetry of Architecture, or The Architecture of the Nations of Europe, considered in its association with natural scenery and national character, and the papers were worked off month by month from Oxford or wherever he might be, only terminating with the termination of the magazine in January 1839. They paraded a good deal of classical learning and travelled experience. Readers of the magazine took their author for some dilettante don at Oxford. The editor did not wish the illusion to be dispelled, so John Ruskin had to choose a nom de plume. He called himself Katapushin, according to nature, for he had begun to read some Aristotle no phrase would have better expressed his point of view, that of common sense extended by experience and confirmed by the appeal to matters of fact rather than to any authority or tradition or committee of taste or abstract principles. While these papers were in process of publication, Katapushin plunged into his first controversy as an opponent of Parsi's convergence of perpendiculars according to which vertical lines should have a vanishing point, even though they are assumed to be parallel to the plane of the picture. During this controversy, and just before the summer tour of 1838 to Scotland, 
John Ruskin was introduced to Miss Charlotte Withers, a young lady who was as fond of music as he was of drawing. They discussed their favourite studies with eagerness, and, to settle the matter, he wrote a long essay on the comparative advantages of the studies of music and painting, in which he set painting as a means of recreation and of education far above music. Already at nineteen, then, we see him a writer on art, not full-fledged, but attracting some notice. Towards the end of 1838, a question arose as to the best site for the proposed Scott Memorial at Edinburgh, and a writer in the architectural magazine quoted Katapushin as the authority in such matters, saying that it was obvious, after those papers of his, that design and site should be simultaneously considered, on which the editor begs the favour of Katapushin to let our readers have his opinion on the subject, which we certainly think of considerable importance. So he discussed the question of monuments in general, and of this one in particular, in a long paper coming to no very decided opinion, but preferring, on the whole, a statue group with a colossal Scot on a rough pedestal to be placed on Salisbury Crags where the range gets low and broken towards the north at about the height of St. Anthony's Chapel. His paper did not influence the Edinburgh Committee, but it was not without effect, as the following extract shows. Bayswater, November thirtieth, 1838 Dear Sir, Your son is certainly the greatest natural genius that ever it has been my fortune to become acquainted with, and I cannot but feel proud to think that at some future period when both you and I are under the turf, it will be stated in the literary history of your son's life that the first article of his which was published was in London's Magazine of Natural History. Yours very sincerely, J.C. Loudon. End of Book One, Chapter Seven. Recording by Graham Arrowsmith. <laughs>